We are in Genesis chapter 11, and this, and Shana's not here to shoot me down, <laughs> we are going to conclude today uh, this study. I actually thought about going one more time just to have question and answer, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going there. Um, last week we looked at what life was like coming off of the ark uh, for Noah and his family. And, you know, you have to kind of put yourself in their shoes and imagine what that would have been like, knowing you are it on the planet there. As you look out at these new days, the earth beginning to sprout again, um, God gave his commands afresh to be fruitful and multiply as they came off the ark to the, to the critters and to them to be fruitful and multiply and to disperse, to fill the earth in chapter 9 and verse 1 and in verse 7, be fruitful, multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Uh, we see, we saw last week an amendment in the way things were situated in that food was now given, or food was given, food was given, previously. Animals were given to the saints for food in that time. We also see an understanding of why capital punishment is necessary and important. And we talked about that at great length. Without this command, it is really simply arbitrary. And you can see why some might suggest that it's cruel and inhuman to do such a thing. And who am I? Who am I to take the life of another man? Are we not just perpetuating this whole cycle? And we see that, again, in God's word, this is a delegated command by God. There And it is a huge responsibility, and sadly, so many nations and so many states are abdicating that responsibility. God made them a promise that he would never again destroy the earth in a flood that way. Um, didn't say he wasn't necessarily going to destroy it in another way, uh, but he would not destroy it in a flood and gave the promise of the rainbow uh, in the earth. Between the flood and Babel, we saw that sin was still a thing with regard to Noah getting hammered and laying naked in his tent. Um, we didn't spend a lot of time on the curse. I still don't intend to. We looked at the generations of Noah in chapter 10, Shem, Ham, and Japheth there. Japheth, essentially, he and his family would spread from that region ultimately to the north and northwest as you look at the names and nations that would come from Japheth. Shem would be the peoples of the east as they would disperse, as we're going to read about it today, and Ham, the land of Canaan and Egypt and Cush and Ethiopia, Libya, that way spreading into Africa. Um, we saw in the middle of this narration of the generations in chapter 10 
that the earth was divided in verse 28 in that day. Is that a sociological dividing? Is this the time of Babel as it's speaking here? Or is there actually perhaps Pangea happening at that time where the earth is settling in after the flood and shifting away? I can't say that with certainty. I can't not say it either because it doesn't specify uh, specifically, all it says is that the earth was divided. And we get into the major cause of the division, at least sociologically, in chapter 11. We started out last week. Knowing that the whole earth was one language and the same words. That shouldn't be startling. Should be of no surprise. Uh, if... Adam and Eve are the parents of all, then everybody would have the same language going from there. Um, we can understand accents would probably differ all through London, up into Scotland and Ireland. Accents differ. Even in the boroughs of New York, accents differ. Uh, into the south, Georgia Southern is different from Texas Southern. There. And there's Minnesota, you know. Uh, so even within English, you have the accents, but it's still all the same language that the people are speaking. Same words. As the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Where was that specifically? I can't say. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They made bricks, brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So, what's the problem? Contrary to God's command. God's command was what? Disperse and scatter. And fill the earth. Fill the earth. Okay. And they're saying, no, no, we're going we're gonna to stay here. We are going to stay coalesced. We are going to stay a unit and imagine the things we can do. We're going to build a tower and we are going to make a name for ourselves. We are going to bring greatness upon ourselves. They even defy God's intention is command by saying, lest we be dispersed. It's like, we're not going to. Verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city, the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. What does God not do here? Doesn't do a lot of stuff. Kill them. Doesn't kill them. Once again, God does not kill his rebellious children. 
And we see he just did that in the flood. But how long was that after the time of Adam and Eve? 1,500, 1,600 years by the time frame given in Scripture. So he put up with rebellion until it got to the point of it was evil always continually within man's heart. That was his bent. And God sees, here we go again, you know. Man, you people. And he doesn't destroy them. What grace. Chief, do you know the timeline between this flood and the Babel? Uh, again, if you were to simply zap down from the lineage of Shem, uh, four generations, three, four generations. Again, the people were live, still living longer, even though, as you look at the time frame given later in this chapter, you see the ages begin to ebb off from this 900 years prior to the flood into the 120 that God said that he would bring to man at that time. So God shows great grace. He doesn't destroy them, even though man is trying to find its his identity apart from God. We're going to make our own identity. We're going to be our own people. We're going to be self-determinant. Instead of being the people God would have us to be. Don't want to know what you have to say. I'm going to find my own way. And God, in his grace, does not destroy man. Verse 7. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. What is interesting about that sentence? To whom is God speaking? Schizophrenic? You might tell You know, I, I, I wonder how the Jews get around this in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image, and here let us go down and confuse their languages. God wouldn't be unfolding his plan to the angelic host. He doesn't need them to go down and do this he could send them if that is to whom he was speaking and his speech in Genesis 1 let us make man in our image that's certainly not the angelic host that he's speaking of here and so you have indications of the plurality the, the plural nature of God here in the opening chapters of scripture. So you can see this unity of God. And this diversity of God. Even here. Let us go down and confuse their languages. God highlights that they are one people. They are all of one language. And he understands what they could do. 
Um, sometimes, I don't know if there's any Star Trek freaks in here, but every now and then there's an episode where there's like a multitude of options for the future, and they're, you know, which, which option are they going to take, and they get a look at what the possible options are. And we, we don't have that view. We never have that view. There is one, though, who knows all the possibilities going forth of what could be. Um, David even asks God, you know, if we stay here, what will happen? God tells him what will happen if they stay in place. Because God knows in his omniscience what would come to pass. And so they take a different pathway. Interesting that God knows all of those potentialities. And God disperses the language. The narrative is very simple, just as it often is. The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left building off the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Any, anybody here bilingual? Anybody speak more than one language? I mean, fluently? I know you guys can. Speak. Okay. Well, I can what do you speak? I can, I can talk Spanish. Speak Spanish. Spanish? Okay. Anybody any speak something different? Did you pick up any German? Yeah, no. Nice. <laughs> nice. Good. Chuk? A little bit of a lot. Okay. Like kindergarten. Street chuk? <laughs> what? I mean... What would it take? All of a sudden you wake up and you're speaking a different language. How is that? What is required in, in the human being to change your language in an instant? It's happened to people that are in comas where, and I wish it would happen to me, where they wake up with a, <laughs> a, a, a Italian or Australian or Irish accent. Yeah. And they have no idea where it came from, but yeah. they just get in a coma and all of a sudden they wake up with a different... Mm. And, and that's probably more accent than language, but uh, it's still kind of bizarre. It's a miracle. I mean, what, what would it take in the, in the rewiring of the mind? Well, you can do it on a computer just by programming it. <laughs> the brain's a computer, so... Oh, that's how they they still up. think in their own language, but speaking... What about, what about your tongue? Sometimes you know, that's true. Yeah, you got to learn the, how to pronounce vowels. So what can God do in a human being in a moment? Anything. That God... Everything together. Yeah. That all of a sudden, they're speaking different languages. Okay. What is that going to do in here if all of a sudden we are all speaking completely different languages? Cause a little bit of chaos. <laughs> yeah, but then I hear Jerry speaking my language over there. What am I going to do? I'm going to go hang with Jerry because he, you know, he and I are the only two that communicate. You know, and David and Josh are going, oh, dude, awesome. Yeah, awesome. And, and they start hanging together. And Yeah, there, there are ways to break down language barriers, but is that easy? It takes time. 
It takes time, unless you're really gifted in languages. It takes time, and so you are going to glom together. I mean, it would, it would make sense. When you read the Table of Nations, you see it kind of happening by families, too. So I, I don't necessarily know that it was two strangers who spoke the same language, but it, it, they seem to disperse based Her family. on yes. families. Good. Good. And just the fact that Shem, Ham, and Japheth kind of went three different directions, you kind of see three principal languages and then subdivisions of that that spread out from there. Do we see God doing this elsewhere in Scripture where suddenly... He changes a person. David. Who? I would say the day of Pentecost when they could speak language. Okay, Pentecost. Boom. There's a passage in Zephaniah where God speaks of one day all of the languages being healed, and where we can then communicate with one another again. What a beautiful day that will be, and there won't be that. You won't need the universal translator in Star Trek. But sometimes when we're having discussions with our parents or our children or our spouses, it almost seems like we're speaking different languages because we're trying to communicate something and, you know, for whatever reason, I can't get my message across to you and you can't get your message across to me and then we end up having that conflict. Yeah, even when we're using the same words. Mm-hmm. That's it. Any other times in scripture you, you know of somebody who just changed in an instant? Perfect. What happened to him? Uh, he was full of pride and didn't take the advice of Daniel and uh, the Lord humbled him by making him crazy like a wild beast and simply continued with the craft outside for seven years. I guess somehow still was the emperor of the Babylonian Empire but and then returned to the throne seven years later after the Lord humbled him. So he lost it and got it back. Lost his mind. Became like a beast. And he got it back. Paul, on the road to Damascus. I hate them. I'm going to persecute them. I'm going to kill them. They're fools. And boom, he sees. Say what? I'm going to be one of them. Yeah. Yeah, that was the last thing on his mind. You know, there's no way. You'd have told them in Jerusalem, hey, what are you, you know, are you going to talk with any of them? No. And God changed him in an instant. There's a passage in Jeremiah that touched my heart as I was looking at this. There's a kid song, nothing is too difficult for thee. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son. Let's see, am I in the right place? Oh, wrong verse. Um, After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. A little bit later in the chapter, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? This is the God who created the heavens by the power of his word. Is anything too difficult 
before the living God. And he even appeals to, Jeremiah appeals to the creation. So we see here in the short term, you can see where the peoples who spoke the same languages would glom together and would now likely move away from those who didn't speak like we did. Just because it's too difficult. It's, it's I mean, to live the daily life. Um, what are the long-term consequences of this? Different nations. Present day. I mean, this is, think, think of... Coming off of the ark, there's essentially one people. You know, how did they look? Did they all look the same? I don't know. But I know that within Adam and Eve is the genetic cocktail for the beautiful diversity that we see in the world around us and the peoples across the globe. We were talking about um, doodles, golden doodles, last night. Poodle, golden retriever, golden doodles. Doesn't look like a poodle, doesn't look like a golden retriever. It's something in between. But what is it? It's a, it's a dog. It's a dog. But now they look different. And, you know, what if... The, we start breeding the golden doodle with more golden retrievers. It's going to look more like a golden retriever. What if we start breeding them with poodles? They're going to look more like poodles. And so you can see with the separation of the peoples, God takes this genetic diversity within all of them, and starts fashioning people differently across the face of the earth. And why do Norwegians have blonde hair and blue eyes? I don't know. I don't know. Is that better for the northern tier, having light eyes with the diminished sun? Is it better living on the equator to have really dark eyes? Uh, is it better to have the more melanin if the sun is more intense at that point? But God saw fit to create all of the beautiful palettes of ethnicities that are in the world from one people. That should make our hearts sore. That should give us opportunity to speak against what? Racism. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the... The um, oh, eugenics. Eugenics of the early 1900s. You know, we were trying to purify the races. You know, a lot of that was founded in racism, that there were lesser peoples on the face of the earth. And it is wretched. For God, it is a beautiful thing. The, the palette of God's paintbrush is extraordinary.
So coming off of Babel, God disperses them over the face of the earth. He accomplishes what man would not accomplish. From there, in the rest of chapter 11, you see flow out the generations. Again, the general to the specific. We see the generations of Shem, starting in verse 10, focusing in on Abraham. And from there, you start to find the story of Israel. We see that theme, we talked about that theme throughout where God discusses the general, focuses in on the specific, and that seems to be the format of Genesis. So before I go into really a wrap-up of Genesis here in our last 25 minutes, uh, I'm going to open up, are there any questions anybody has here? Go ahead, Katie. Uh, question about verse 6, actually. I mean, I think I know what you will say, but when it says they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So just to clarify, what is that? What is that specifically? It doesn't say. They're going to make a name for themselves. They're not going to disperse. Uh, What is the intentions of their heart? We don't know. But sin, it has to be sin because it's against God's giving. Yes. So that, I, is, that is the implication there. Uh-huh. Yes. No, I mean, I, 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 I will say it. Not that <laughs> um, so I heard a sermon one time, not to take up too much time, but I heard a sermon, and he, my understanding from it and my perception of what I heard was that the Tower of Babel was, um, like, God dispersed the languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, like, it's it's a grace of God that we have nations today because mm-hmm. if you put them all together, if you put people, the more people you have all together, the more sin you have. And it's actually a grace that there are different nations and people in different places because then, and he used the example of, like, North Korea or, like, any place that a sinful man, a very, very, um, we're all, I'm very, very, but a sinful man can like get control, and if you had only one nation, that one sinful man could act, you know, get control and like ruin. Every, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. So like that, it's a it was I a mean, grace at, of God to split up the sin. Yeah. yeah to like split split up the yeah. like a the sin. Disordering of the organization is his sin. Almost. Yeah, kind of. So like the horrible. Again, I am horrible. But the horrible, uh, yeah, like you said, like Hitler or whatever, um, have didn't hold, have control of the whole world. We have yeah. to hold each other accountable. Yeah. Nations sure. can hold other nations accountable. Yeah. Friends can hold other friends accountable. Yeah. Um, and those kinds of things. Yeah. So, like, that, too, was, was a grace of God, not just because he didn't demolish them for not obeying, but actually it prevented them from being from working out their sin to the fullest, to even more fully. Good. Yeah. Good. As they did just a few generations yeah, before. before. Yeah. Is, is not the internet kind of the Tower of Babel today where anybody can go online and translate their language and then go to Wikipedia and Google and, you know, it, it, it almost seems like we have a natural tendency to get back to... This idolatry where we try to make a name for ourselves and, you know, as long as I have this in my pocket, I know everything. 
and uh, I can communicate with anybody because I have this. Katie. Yeah, so, and I think this particular pastor would also say, like, yeah, if the world is coming to its end, whatever that is, in a year or 200 years or whatever, that we're becoming more and more one, and therefore sin is becoming more and more prolific, and then Jesus is going to come back, because that would just be really bad. Even in, in my youth, trying to imagine all the nations getting together and saying kumbaya, no way. No way. I mean, even, even Europe. You know, Germany is definitely Germany. France is definitely France. And, you know, Germans don't want to be French, and the French don't want to be Germans. But now, again, this whole EU, you know, European community where everybody wants to... On the basis of good intentions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's also the migration from rural living to urban living that because we're more productive, because it takes less acres to feed more people that, you know, just a hundred years ago, most people were living on farms. Right. And all of a sudden, fewer farms, bigger cities, there's that migration into the cities. And in the cities, I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah exist today in just about every city that, that we know of. The, the, the larger the city, the more free time people have and their minds wander and get more idols. If you didn't have access to a grocery store, how would you do? Die. I mean, think of it. You know, typically, typically there's you know, one family out there who's living off the land and they've, they've got a lot of, they're growing a lot of stuff and maybe they have some goats and, and chickens. I think of the balls uh, when they were here. Uh, the Stevenses uh, now, and you know, all of us, we'd be, <laughs> we'd be hurting uh, there. And you can see that if somebody with an iron fist controls all of that, we're going to be in desperate straits, and we're going to be dependent and needy with regard to one another. But when you get up at sunrise and you have to work or you don't eat and you work until the sun goes down, your mind has less time to wander and think about all the stuff that gets us in trouble. Yeah. And, uh, you know, d d leisure, there, there's leisure. a blessing to getting your hands dirty and working hard and yeah. sleeping well at night. All right, let's, uh, what we're going to do is we're just going to look at the takeaways from this. Why bother? Why have we spent a half a year at least discussing Genesis 1 through 11? Um First thing is you cannot begin to comprehend, explain, or provide solution for really the human predicament right now. Why is man so extraordinary, and yet why is man so despicable? From the same man, Ravi Zacharias. You know, what a, what a man of God. What a hypocrite. What a, what a sinful man. How to live that dichotomy. And I would say we all do it. We all do it. 
And the battle for the Christian is to slay the old man. The old man has been crucified with Christ and I got to keep putting him down or he's going to keep wrapping his arms around my ankles. Until when? No. Well, yes. Yes and no. Until I die. Yes. I mean, I'm going to be there. Hopefully he doesn't drag me down into the grave. Hopefully it isn't my sin that ends up being the cause of my death. That could happen, though. So, yes, no, yes. The human predicament uh, is fleshed out, is made plain in Genesis 1 through 11. Um, At the same time, the assault on Genesis 1 through 11, especially in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, is huge today. You're a fool. You are a fool if you believe this. I mean, Christians, the, the, a young earth creation is being driven from academia as mythology. And you do are completely anti-science. We'll talk about anti-science here. In, in just a minute. Um, as we walked through this, I tried to highlight as we went through Genesis 1 and 2 why there is much to commend a plain reading of Genesis 1 and 2. Why you can read it and not have to go, well, uh, I have to bend and contort it into something that it doesn't say. We discussed that big to small structure, the big structure in Genesis 1, the focused structure of Genesis 2. Throughout Genesis, these are the generations of, boom, this is specifically what is going down. We looked at the argument of days and numbers, that it was evening and morning the first day. Um... There are those who would argue that because of the structure, Genesis 1 is poetry. It's not meant to be read as a narrative. I'd like to invite you to flip over to Numbers chapter 1. In Numbers chapter 1, we see a census taken. I won't read all of this. It puts you all right to sleep. Um, but in verse 20, it says, The people, after the census was taken, they were listed. Verse 20 says, The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old upward, all who were able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Reuben were uh, 46,500. Of the people of Simeon, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, of those who are listed according to the numbers of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. Did you notice, notice, notice the similarity there? And you know what? They go through all the tribes of, you go, are they just being poetic? There, or are they just giving a structure to what they're listing? Giving a structure to what they listed. Numbers chapter 7. 
Each tribe had a responsibility to bring an offering to the Lord. And I will just read one of them to you, and you can read the rest if you wish to. Uh, You know, if you're reading through the Bible and you get to a point like this, you're going to read one of them, and then you read the next one, you go, yeah, it's just a saint. Then you read the next one, you go, oh, I can just like read the name and the number and go (laughs) kind of jump a little bit. Anyway, um, pick up in verse 12. He who offered his offering the first day was Nashon, the son of Aminadab of the tribe of Judah, and his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin, 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. One golden dish of ten shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of a peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, a year old. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Aminadab. On the second day, and you get the idea, and it's the same. It is the same. It's not poetry. It is the structure I'm going through each one. Why do they do that? I don't know. That's how they wrote it at the time. So repetition does not necessarily point to poetry. And if Genesis 1 is poetry, it is unlike any other poetry in the Old Testament. It is unlike the poetry of the Psalms. It is unlike the poetry of Job. It is unlike the poetry of Lamentations. There. Uh, Where it is more an idea of couplets. Scripture attests to Genesis, the historicity of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. We looked at Exodus chapter 20. I'll go there again. In the Ten Commandments, as God is giving Israel the Ten Commandments, he gets to the Sabbath day and he loiters here. Remember the Sabbath day, chapter. Exodus 20 verse 8 to keep it holy six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God on it you shall not do any work you your son or your daughter or your male servant your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy God is Equating the seven-day work week to the seven days of creation. Would anybody read that in that day any way other than what I just explained as errors? I would argue also that you would find a scant few individuals prior to 1800 that would read Genesis chapter 1 other than there was evening, there was morning, the first day. If it's not that way, God is a lousy communicator. If that is not what he intended, he doesn't communicate very well. Well, it's also interesting, if you have the red print Bible, you find a lot of red print in the New Testament that is referring to Genesis as well. And if you take the Lee's 
in Genesis, you're talking from a very reliable source who was there, and he doesn't tend to give any indication that it's not literal. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. The Pharisees are coming to Jesus to challenge him about the issue of divorce. Jesus responds to them in verse 4 and says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 1 Corinthians 11 verse 8 also speaks of woman being made for man, not man for woman. It's pointing to Genesis chapter 2. So, the Bible itself points to the historicity of these opening chapters of Genesis. So what will I do with the challenges from the external world? Some people will argue, well, you know, look at how the Jews misinterpreted the messianic claims of Jesus Christ. Did they? Yes. They thought he was going to come in and kick Rome out what was was their interpretation of the prophecies incorrect is Jesus Christ going to come and reign yes Yes. so their timing was off so the reading was a plain reading of prophecy they just they missed it and what they, what they really missed was the necessity for the Messiah to die for the sin of his people first. So again, it's not like, well, they, you know, they needed a, you know, one of those little red lenses to put down over to really see the image. No, that wasn't it. Their understanding of prophecy was absolutely spot on. It was just wrong as far as the timing some people will argue, we were talking about this up at the volleyball tournament. Well, the Bible's not a science textbook. You're right, it's not. Well, the Bible's not purely a history. In its entirety, it's not. Is there history within Scripture? Yes. A ton. So if this is the Word of God, would we expect the history to be accurate? <clears throat> Absolutely. Otherwise, again, God's not very good. Not a very good God. Does God, in his word, so it's not a science textbook, does it speak about the order of things at times about the science of the world? Job says he hangs the earth on nothing. What is the earth hanging on? Nothing. <laughs> Sorry, what? You know, and, and so when God's word speaks about history, it speaks truth. When God makes a declaration about the known world to us, he speaks truth. We have to understand the anthropomorphisms and figures of speech just like anybody would in any language. But if it isn't a figure of speech, if it isn't a metaphor, if it isn't a simile, we'd be hard-pressed to read it otherwise. Read it as it is stated. I have, I have another question. Talk to me. Um, what, I'm not, I totally agree with everything you're saying. Where 
and I could be wrong about what I'm about to say. If it's contrary to scripture, I hope you would disagree with me. So <laughs> go ahead. But, you know, sometimes we talk about, like, God opened my eyes to the scripture, or, I don't, is, right? Do we say that sometimes? I hope so. So, I once where, was blind, but now I see. Where is, like, the... What does that mean, or like, what's the what's the balance between an unbeliever, not you know, just reading a book because it's a book, mm-hmm. reading this and understanding like this makes sense, this is historical, this can make sense, versus God opening my eyes to it. Somebody very dear to me has read the Bible before and said I get nothing out of it. I heard one old man say once that you're reading other people's mail. You know, you don't get it because you're not you're not reading it as to you. You don't you don't see it because at this point it is not to you. When you when you are saved by grace, when God regenerates you, you were dead in your sin. Okay, that's what Paul says very plainly. You were dead in your sin. Dead men do nothing. Okay, you have no affinity, no affection for the living God. When God opens your eyes. Think Paul. You know, he's, he's persecuting him. And all of a sudden, boom. We talked about, um, imagine what's going on in Paul's mind during his three days of blindness. Where all of his knowledge of the law starts to go click, 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 click. And he goes, what have I done? And we, our eyes are open to see. And I'm sure some of you in here have very radical testimonies to that and where God was tweet to you and then all of a sudden he's not. Oh. Do you, you think that's like more like a revealing of faith rather than you could read it and have clear understanding, just not believe it? Yeah. It is faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. The words bring life. So I think that's also important to remember in this consideration. There's a necessity of regeneration, of coming to life in Christ, to be spiritually awakened and alive, to be able to go into God's word and go, oh, this is so good. This is so good. And I, I... I would, I would say, as a believer, if I open God's word and I go, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe that he loves me and saved me and died for me and all, all that, and I open his word and I go, I got nothing for it. But isn't it possible for believers to go through places like that? Because the disciples, like, they saw Jesus feed the 4,000, mm-hmm. 5,000, mm-hmm. but it says that their hearts were hardened and that they didn't understand. At that point... I think I think the pre-resurrection, pre-Pentecostal situation of the apostles is unique. At the same time, I do see, for example, Peter kind of hanging with the Jews and not wanting to hang with the Gentiles. I think sin issues are a real issue where our relationship with Christ is um, not good because of sin in our own life. And that might not be specific um, drug addiction. It may just be indifference to God. And sometimes it takes a whoop upside of the head, the discipline of God spoken of in Hebrews chapter 12, to bring us back 
to find that passion for him again. We do see after the resurrection too, you see such a radical change, like even in Peter. I mean, like it all became clear at that point in all of that, like yep. you were saying with Paul, that yeah. he understood so much more. Yeah, and think of the disciples on the road to Emmaus where Jesus opened up scripture to them and they're like, oh. All right, quickly. I'll just say on that. I think Please. I also have to remember that scripture uses uh, human pers- perspective and talks the way we do, like you saw in First Kings a couple of weeks ago, uh, the diameter. You know, the bowl is not 3.14 in circumference. Yeah. But it, it, there's nothing wrong with that. Or Estimations sunrise, rounding up. Just like newspapers still talk about sunrise. So we got to be careful of talking from human perspective or giving a didactic. Yes. So as we're talking about that science, I think I have to remember those things too. Yeah. The next point is, are Christians anti-science? No. No, absolutely not. It's interesting to look back at the history of science, and it is because God is knowable, and because God created a knowable world and told man to go out and have dominion, that guys like Galileo and Copernicus knew they could go out and examine these things, even though the church, sadly, was going... No, it's not. You can't do that. And they're going, oh, yes, we can. This is the world that he has made. Pascal, man. Blaise Pascal, Penzies. All right. Um, you know, it, it is through a noble God creating a noble world that we can have confidence in our ability to observe, learn, understand, test, repeat all of these things. What we saw in Genesis regarding man, we see the glory of man. We understand the glory of man, his dignity, that he was created in the image of God, each one, that he was created with purpose to have dominion upon the earth, that he was to be fruitful and multiply, that his origin is from God, his identity is in God the God who created him. We get an understanding of what marriage is and is all about. But at the same time, in Genesis chapter 3, we see very clearly why man is so obliteratingly broken. His relationship with God is broken, apart from a work of God in their life. We see that man's relationship with the earth is broken. Um that we are constantly having to fight the earth now. The earth doesn't just bring forth crops. We have to work at it in the toil of our brow. And even then, it may be wiped out. We see the brokenness of our relationship with other human beings, and we understand that now. We understand the brokenness in marriage. We understand the brokenness in ourselves, why so many want to just... End it all. Meaningless. There's no purpose under the sun. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So man's responsibility over and over again, God calls man to himself. Seek me. Seek me. Be found by me. Seek his purpose. Seek the wholeness that comes from him and hope even this day, going back to Genesis chapter 3, for the day when the head of Satan will be crushed. 
and God will make all things new.